0: Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome everybody to episode 43 of Push Dose EMS, your monthly educational offering from the Milwaukee County Office of Emergency Management. I'm your host, Jeff Matcha, clinical education manager for the county. Uh, Joining me today are a host of our usual suspects and a special guest. So our special guest for the day is Dr. Jamie Holland. Uh, Welcome Dr. Holland.
1: Good morning, everyone.
0: And then going down my list, uh, Chief Medical Director, Dr. Ben Weston. Dr. Weston, welcome.
2: Thank you, Jeff. Hello, everyone.
0: Uh, EMS Division Director, Dan Pojar. Welcome, Dan. Thanks, Jeff. Hey, everybody. Uh, Assistant Medical Director, Dr. Tom Growey. Dr. Growey, welcome. Hello. And last but certainly not least, along with our medical direction team, Joel Vallier. Joel, welcome.
3: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: All right. Welcome, everybody, to this month's episode uh, before we deep dive too much into our topic of pediatric assessment, uh, we will hand it off to Dan for any system updates. Dan. Thanks, Jeff.
2: I'll be quick here. 2024 is in full swing. Uh, we're currently got our team working on some guideline updates, which will be delivered around the April timeframe. So look for that in a future educational and podcast. Uh, we're also looking at last year's data, understanding some of the trends from 2023, working some of the numbers, uh, so we'll also share some of those details once we have some more information and uh, the data is cleaned up. One of the themes for 2024 is to add in critical thinking and start to foster some of that curiosity in areas where there are special populations or some unique clinical presentations. So today's topics on pediatrics, and we're excited to have Dr. Holland join us, so thank you for joining us, Dr. Holland.
1: Happy to be here.
0: Thank you, Dan. And with a message from Medical Direction, Doctor Weston.
2: All right, thanks, Jeff, uh, and welcome again to all of our listeners. So this podcast is is really a great return to the basics, uh, a bread and butter podcast about a patient population that not uncommonly causes a bit of anxiety among pre-hospital providers, uh, our pediatrics, our kiddos. So we'll talk through some basic pediatric assessment, uh, as well as some more advanced critical thinking elements of rapid recognition and assessment of sick versus not sick in kids. Uh, and we're honored to have Dr. Jamie Holland. She's a pediatric emergency medicine physician from children's, Wisconsin, joining us to help impart her knowledge to all of us. So thank you to Dr. Holland and I'll hand it back to you, Jeff, to get us started. Thanks.
0: Excellent. Thank you so much, Dr. Weston, and I will hand the reins over to Dr. Growley, Dr. Holland and our illustrious PA Joel. Take it away
4: all right so today we're going to talk about um as everybody else had alluded to critical thinking and assessment in pediatric patients and as dan had mentioned this is really keeping in our theme of critical thinking and differential diagnosis that we're really trying to build around this beginning part of 2024. so we're going to talk about some high yield pediatric assessment points learn some tips and tricks for determining which kids are sick versus not sick and then apply some of these to real life cases that we've had in Milwaukee County uh, to form differential diagnoses and discuss some different treatment plans. So, you know, as everyone alluded to, we've got Dr. Jamie Holland here, one of our pediatric EM docs at Children's who's gonna help us. So Jamie, why don't you tell us a little bit more about about yourself?
1: Yeah, so um, I'm from Nebraska originally, went west of Nebraska for my pediatric residency And then um, made my way back to the Midwest for fellowship. Being here in Milwaukee has been fantastic in what I've gotten to see um, and learn. And I'm excited to have the opportunity to see the pre-hospital side of things this month on my EMS rotation.
4: Great. We'll have to edit that part about Nebraska out. Otherwise, uh, Dan's going to get a little too excited and uh, hijack the podcast. So. uh great so joel why don't you uh, get us kicked off here sure
3: well i think all of us have experienced uh some sick kids in the past and they get uh, a little scary um uh, so dr holland let's just say you're in the back of an ambulance you're dispatched to a four-year-old with shortness of breath already sounds kind of scary so what are the sort of things you can do en route uh, to the scene to prepare yourself to get on scene
1: I think one of the first things you have to think about is what is our differential for shortness of breath? Um, A lot of times people jump to the respiratory things in kids, bronchiolitis, croup, um, foreign body obstruction are at the top of my mind. Um, But there are also other systems that can cause shortness of breath. So um, is this a cardiac cause? Um, Does this kid have a cardiac history or is this something like heart failure? or a myocarditis. Um, And then there are kids that are so anemic that they start to have shortness of breath. So I think those are all a few of the things that crossed my mind initially.
3: So four-year-old, we maybe don't know the weight of the patient at present. We have to start looking at meds. Um, Let's discuss some ways to estimate the weight of a four-year-old prior to getting on scene.
1: Yeah, um, there are a couple ages that I have memorized in my mind a specific weight to use. And so for me, a one-year-old is 10 kilos, a five-year-old is 20 kilos, and a 10-year-old is 30 kilos. And so everything else in the middle, I kind of just estimate. So our four-year-old is probably closer to the 20 kilo, like five-year-old, um, but not all the way there. So I might pick a weight of 16 kilos or so. Um, and if you look at your Braslow tape, if anyone has that handy, it places a four year old between fifteen and eighteen kilos. So I think that's a reasonable way to estimate.
3: I like that estimation. So if we are already thinking that this might be a scary four year old and we have shortness of breath, and if this starts going south uh, and things are getting a little bit more dicey, what kind of equipment do you think we're gonna need to start managing this airway?
1: Yeah, I like to think of uh, the airway in a stepwise approach. So, on the less invasive end of the spectrum, I have the things like suctioning and nasal cannula or face mask to give a little bit extra support. If that's not enough, um, escalating to a non-rebreather, then to your bag and mask and eventually to your supraglottic airway if needed. Um, when it comes to specific sizes, always remember the resources that you have available to you like your Braslow tape and your patient care guidelines and you can even pull those out in route.
4: Yeah. And to Dr. Helen's point, you know, if you pull out your patient care guidelines and if you're carrying IGELs, you know, and you there's a little chart on the IGEL patient care guideline that does have estimated patient weight and IGEL size. So based on um, this kid and the weight that we gave, uh, you know, we would go for an IGEL size two. So, again, these are things that we can kind of think about in route to the hospital and we already have that in the back of our mind not saying we need to open it so that when this if this kid gets sick we don't have to then figure out which one we uh we need because we already know we need a size two is what we need to reach for okay so and i want to come back for a second so you know now that we like get on scene you know you've you've gone in route you've thought about what equipment you might need what, what weight you might have maybe starting to calculate some um, medication dosages for this respiratory kid, or let's say you're going to a seizure or a cardiac arrest. Um, And I want to talk about this in primary impression of sick versus not sick. And we'll have a big discussion on that later on. Um, But let's say that you walk up on this shortness of breath kid and he looks not sick. You know, you do your pediatric assessment triangle, you come up with not sick, um, what are your next steps in in uh, management of this patient or how do you approach this encounter in this not sick kid with shortness of breath?
1: Yeah, I think it is important to approach every patient the same. And so you mentioned the pediatric assessment triangle, and I think that's a great way to start and then move to the area that is the chief complaint. So Um, With this patient's shortness of breath, what are you noticing specifically when you watch them breathe or when you listen to their heart and their lungs? How is their perfusion? Um, What is their positioning? Are they leaning forward to try and get more air or do they appear very comfortable?
4: Great. You know, so you're talking about, again, this is shortness of breath. So we're really kind of focused on these are a lot of ABC problems. And I love how you brought up that, especially cardiac is another cause of shortness of breath. You know, I think we see a lot of kids that are all short of breath, and the vast majority of the time, it's uh, you know bronchiolitis, asthma attack, you know croup, um, a lot of these respiratory things. So, making sure that you're assessing for these cardiac issues as well is really important. So, how do you, you know, you do your assessment, and then let's have, let's say you are starting to engage in history taking. So. Could you talk a little bit about, you know, how much do you engage the parent in that? How much do you engage the kid? Where's the balance in that? Does their age, you know, have an impact? What do you think? What are some tips you have?
1: Yeah, their age absolutely um, has an impact on how much they can participate. I like to give them as much autonomy as possible and allow them to tell me what they're feeling and what's going on. Obviously, there are going to be the younger children that aren't able to communicate um, or they are going to be so incredibly scared of the situation. And at that point, I turn to the parent for help, but I try and allow the kid to tell me as much as possible.
3: So you've talked about the parents. Uh, Parents obviously want to interject as much information as possible. But how do you decide how much to engage with them during the history taking itself?
1: Yeah. So again, I focus my attention to the child. And if the child is able to communicate with me, I direct all of my questions to them and kind of let the parent talk on this side. If I have a specific question for the parent that the child is not able to answer, I will then turn to the parent and give them their opportunity to speak. And at times you may have to tell the parent that you are hearing directly from the source what's going on first and we will allow for their commentary in a minute.
4: Yeah, that's a great point about um, acknowledging them in, in those situations as well. And and I've certainly been in those situations where the parent just wants to talk over the kid, or maybe it's an elderly patient and the kid just wants to talk over, you know, talk over the parent and uh, on the other side of things. So, Um, Getting back to parents a little bit, you know, having a really sick kid can be really challenging for parents. And I'm sure that you've seen a wide range of reactions from parents when their kids are really sick and in respiratory distress and having a seizure, severe trauma, anything like that. I know that parents really are overwhelmed and they mean extremely well, but that can interfere with patient care in a lot of ways. So, how do you manage parents, you know, in these settings in a way that you know really acknowledges and respects their emotions while also preventing this from kind of getting in the way with what you're, what you need to do?
1: Yeah, um, I think you mentioned the word in your question, but really acknowledging what the parent um, is experiencing. So, saying that you recognize that this is a stressful and scary situation for them, but at this moment in time your priority is their child and their child's health and safety usually gets the parent to take a moment and pause. Um, The other thing that can be beneficial is if you have an extra set of hands or an extra person available who can communicate with the parent as to what is going on in the situation, what the interventions are that the team is performing, and kind of what the next steps in care for the patient look like.
3: Sure, Absolutely, those are great tips. Uh, So I think we've all at some point had a squirrely little kid in the emergency department for whatever various reasons it may be, what kind of, tips, uh, kind of tips do you have for performing an assessment on those little squirrely kids, uh, such as one that's upset and crying for whatever reason?
1: Yes, um, I love a good distraction. So whether it's identifying um, a character on the patient's clothing that you can talk about or asking them what they like to do for fun and talking about their favorite activities, Um, sometimes it's asking the parent to give them their phone for, um, a little bit of distraction, but that is my go-to.
4: I remember working in the, uh, children's emergency department and they have these child life specialists who really, their whole job is to like distract kids. And they have this like magic light up wand that spun around. That was like, uh, I mean, it was like crack for kids with how distracting it was. And you could do anything while they were just staring at this. Light up wand, and uh, I should—I have, I need to get one for my kids. Honestly, I don't know for, how long ago that was. But, that is but
1: still, one thing that they use, and it is still a fan favorite, even more so than the iPad, which is shocking. Oh wow! Yeah, <laughs> you can get full lack repairs done while this kid just looks at the spinning light.
4: <laughs> yeah, it's like a cat with um with a laser pointer, right? <laughs> <sighs> true. All right, so Dr. Holland, anything else around assessment? Uh, assessment, physical exam, you know, getting a history from kids you think that we should be aware of?
1: I think the encounters with children are less frequent than they are with adults. And so it's important to practice your systematic approach in uh, non-sick kids so that you are prepared and ready when there is a sick kid.
4: Great. And yeah, I think that any opportunity, any time you're taking care of a kid, that's an opportunity to really practice all this stuff. You know, you got to drive to the hospital and, you know, you can make a physical exam a game while you're in the back of the rig for 15 minutes and and maybe practice doing things that maybe you didn't need to do on that specific kid. You know, you got a kid that maybe has like a sprained ankle and you're not really focused on listening to, you know, heart sounds in that situation, but you want to practice listening to heart sounds in kids, you know, or you wanna practice other parts of your physical exam. So I think those are great opportunities to, to learn and get better exactly like you alluded to. So when we look through a lot of CQIP cases that are related to pediatric patients, we find that a lot of the cases related to diagnosis fall onto situations where there was too much that was relied on this sick versus not sick primary impression. So providers see a kid and they maybe look at them and they say, oh, based on X, Y, and Z, we think this kid isn't sick. Um, But in reality, that kid was sick. Uh, That kid had more going on than it might have seemed at first. So while this has been noted in some of our cases, this really is not uncommon in many other settings. And this isn't really a comment on Milwaukee County or anywhere else, because this is this happens across the board in emergency departments and other EMS settings. Um, so it really isn't unique to us. And it really isn't saying we're doing bad or doing good, but really saying, hey, these are ways that we could all do better and how can we how can we do that? So even the bucks, you know, review tape to decide how they're going to be better at playing basketball. So why should we really be any different there? So I'd be curious if you have any thoughts on how this determination of like sick versus not sick really might change between adults and pediatric patients.
1: Obviously, I'm more comfortable with pediatric patients, but it seems that they decompensate so much quicker than adults. They can be fine for a long period of time and then fall off the cliff, per se. Um, Whereas it's easier to see that gradual progression towards the cliff in adults, we don't always see it in pediatric patients.
3: I think, you know, we, we've been going back and forth with sick versus not sick. Um, you know, we need to break this down a little more. Um, so what does sick versus not sick mean to you, Dr. Holland?
1: To me, sick means I need to do something now. This patient um, in my world is most likely going to be admitted to the hospital, but it's they are very ill or getting to the point of being very ill, and often that looks like problems with ABCs, or in your case, the pediatric assessment triangle.
4: Great. I just want to piggyback on that and emphasize that, um, you know, while Dr. Holland said that sick means they often need admission to the hospital, it does not, she's not saying that not sick patients don't need to be seen in an emergency department, you know, and even though a kid might look not sick, it doesn't mean that they necessarily don't need to go via ambulance. And again, we really want to emphasize that we encourage and we recommend that everybody goes to the hospital, you know, via ambulance to get to get evaluated. You know, they call 911 for a reason, and, and we're here to help them help them get there. So um, let's talk about the pediatric assessment uh, triangle a little bit. So how do you d- use this in your practice? And does it play into your determination of sick versus not sick?
1: So this pediatric assessment triangle is actually something that we are not taught. Uh, This is the first time I've heard of it, but I like it. And I think it is very similar to our approach. Um, So appearance um, to me, that is, what does the child look like? What are they doing? Are they hysterical? Are they easily calmed by mom? Are they limp? Um, Are they crying? Are they fighting you off when you're trying to examine them? Work of breathing, I touched on this a little bit earlier, but when you look at them, do they appear comfortable? Do you see retractions, um, nasal flaring, tracheal tugging? Do you hear adventitious sounds without a stethoscope? How are they positioned? Like I said, are they leaning forward, gasping, trying to get more air in? And then circulation, um, their overall coloration, is their trunk the same as their extremities do they have signs of cyanosis um, modeling pallor things like that
4: great and yeah when i think of the pediatric assessment triangle and like sick versus not sick like to me, a kid that has even one of these, um, any threats to one of these, like maybe the appearance is a little off, the work of breathing is a little off, to me that is a that's a sick kid and really needs to be taken seriously. And if you've got a kid that has two of these that are impacted, two out of three, that's a peri-arrest kid who's on his way, his or her way to cardiac arrest. Um, and that's where I use this a lot to give me that that upfront idea before I even get the rest of my assessment of. How sick this kid is. Um, the one thing that I want to point out when I've, you know, I use this in uh in my clinical practice and when I teach this and talk about this with other EMS providers, the work of breathing piece. A lot of times, this gets kind of overlooked in the sense that people say, "Oh, well, the kid looks like they're breathing okay." But really, you unless you have like exposed the chest and take a really good look at how they're breathing from there, you know, and seen around their neck and made a conscious effort to really kind of get an idea of how fast they're breathing, um, you're going to miss some of this because especially in small kids, some of these you know these retractions and things can be a little bit more uh, a little bit more subtle. Um, So really make sure that as part of this, you're exposing the chest and looking for retractions and really taking a close look at their at their work of breathing instead of just from across the room Well, it looks like they might be they might be breathing okay.
3: So sticking with the the sick versus not sick, uh, does this particularly change any further assessment or history taking that you do after you get past your primary survey?
1: So when I see a sick kid, my exam and interventions begin sooner than when I see a not sick kid. If I have a not sick kid, I get a little more history before taking those next steps. However, with those sick kids, I feel that they need something done in a timely manner. And sometimes those additional history details can wait.
4: All right, so that's a great point. And while you're managing a sick kid and getting those interventions going, you know, this is no different than in adults so how we focus on that primary stabilization and then we can come back to other interventions that we that we have a little bit more time for, you know, after we get that treatment going. So let's transition a little bit. So I'm going to throw some common chief complaints at you that we've seen, as well as a few chief complaints that have shown up in, um, you know, again, real cases that we've had in Milwaukee County. So I'd love to hear what you think are some of the important questions to ask and what physical exam findings you might be looking at for, out for with these cases. And then let us know if there are any big, bad, scary diagnoses with these complaints that we should really worry about. So we'll start with a uh, super, common, super common one, but let's say you've got a pediatric patient that's short of breath.
1: So some of the history-taking questions that I ask would be, when did this start? How long has it been going on for? How severe is it? Meaning, can this patient speak in full sentences or are they really gasping with each word that they say? Um, Any other associated symptoms that they've had during this time? Any fevers, any cough, vomiting, rash, diarrhea? Any sick contacts? Uh, When it comes to exam in pediatrics, we really, really care about vitals. And so in this case, specifically focusing on the respiratory rate and the oxygen, SATs, will on room air. And then, as we mentioned earlier, shortness of breath can be from a multitude of causes, including both respiratory and cardiac causes. And so really honing in on the exams for those systems. Differential-wise, as stated earlier, Respiratory infections such as bronchiolitis, pneumonia, croup are probably the most common with the big, bad, scary ones being the cardiac causes and then foreign bodies and even anaphylaxis.
3: I think I've got a good one. I have uh, an 11 year old here who uh, very commonly comes home from middle school with a headache, uh, wakes up with a headache, uh, doesn't want to go to school sometimes because of a headache. So this is very common. Um, What is your gestalt on that one?
1: Yeah, so again, how long has this been going on? Um, How would they describe the pain um, and its intensity? Where is it located? Has it changed at all? Is it becoming more frequent? Is it becoming more severe? Um, Was there any associated trauma with it? Are they having vision changes? Any vomiting? Any sick symptoms like fever and neck pain? Um, Any discoordination? And then is there a family history of headaches? When it comes to the exam in this patient, again, vitals are everything. Um, Looking at blood pressure and heart rate, specifically to see if there's any signs of increased ICP, and then your neuro exam in this patient is going to be key. Um, I think we've kind of alluded to that the benign things here would be headaches and typical migraines or even a viral illness if it's a short-term thing with the big bad scary things being things such as um, masses bleeds or cns infections like meningitis
4: yeah so i mean the sore ems providers aren't gonna do as you know (laughs) probably as thorough or as in depth of a neuro exam as you know you might do in the emergency department but could you tell us a little bit about what a great, like, just kind of high-yield neurologic exam might be for a kid? Like, what are the really big things that you really want to look at and, and figure out in, in a kid neurologic exam?
1: I'd say if there's one thing you can do, it's look at the pupils. Obviously, we like to prioritize the cranial nerves, but just testing their general motor, you can have them reach and give you a high five. Um, you can have them jump up and down you can have them throw an item at, like, play catch with you. Um, those are simple things that don't seem like a test to them that can give you an idea of if there is a gross abnormality.
4: Great. So a lot of very, very straightforward, you know, gross motor things are, are really uh, really what stands out. And I love your point about the pupils and eyes just being a great place to get some uh, get some information. So... Um, what about, uh, let's say you've got a five-year-old who um, had a seizure. This is another really common you know, EMS complaint.
1: Oh yes, we see this all the time too. History-wise, first of all, is the seizure still going on? If so, how long has it been going on for? If it's resolved, how long did it last and what did it look like at the time? Specifically, what were the eyes doing? What were the extremities doing? Um, is this the first time seizure or has this happened before? If they've had seizures before, are they on any medications? Have there been any missed doses of those medications? Any recent illnesses or sick symptoms? Any fevers? Any family history of seizures? And then moving to questions about more serious things, Um, any recent trauma, especially to the head, and then what medications or substances would they have access to in their environment? Um, Again, exam-wise, focusing on their vital signs, their pupillary exam and their neuro exam. And things that come to mind as a differential for seizures include febrile seizures, which are incredibly common in kids, an underlying seizure disorder, and then the bad, scary things that we always think about include trauma to the head, um, brain, including brain bleeds. Is there a mass um, CNS infection? Is this hypoxic in nature? Um, did they get into any substance and is this from an ingestion? Or on the flip side, are they chronically on medications and is this from a withdrawal? Is it a metabolic issue such as hypoglycemia or electrolyte abnormalities and then in the winter um, one that is way less common but we should still consider is carbon monoxide exposures
3: let's try one that i think you will see i see everybody sees our ems providers see all the time is fevers what are your thoughts on that one
1: yes yeah, so questions i asked the family how long has this been going on for um, what other symptoms are they experiencing? So is this associated with a cough, congestion, vomiting, diarrhea? Um, are they having belly pain or dysuria? Are they not wanting to put weight on their lower extremities? Um, is anyone sick around them? Have they had any recent illnesses? Um, one of the questions that I don't ask because I it doesn't help me um, is how high is the fever going? because that does not play into my differential at all. (laughs) Exam wise, again, focusing on those vital signs, specifically looking at the heart rate and blood pressure because kids will compensate with their heart rate for long periods of time before their blood pressure drops from sepsis. So really being aware of that. And then looking at their overall perfusion. With a differential for this, most common fevers are from viral illnesses, but the ones that we need to worry about are the bacterial illnesses. First, if this child has a fever, you should, as I mentioned, check their perfusion and check for signs of shock or sepsis, um, because those are what would warrant immediate intervention regardless of the cause. So serious bacterial infections include things like bacteremia and meningitis, and those would be the, the ones to worry about.
4: All right, and then to get, give you one more, let's uh, transition to trauma a little bit. And let's say you've got a parent that called 911 one because you've got a toddler or maybe a you know a elementary school age kid who fell and hit their head.
1: Yeah. So when did this happen? How long ago from our encounter did this occur? How did it happen? What happened right after? Did the child cry immediately? That's a great sign. Um, how has the child been doing since? Are they acting like them typ- their typical self or are they more tired than usual? Have they had any vomiting, any difficulty with coordination, walking, talking, and any history that would make them more likely to have a brain bleed? Often in our population, we don't have patients on anticoagulants, uh, but we do have patients with shunts. And so asking that question can be helpful too. Exam-wise, vital signs, pupils, those gross motor skills are often um, a great way to get a neuro exam from these toddlers. And then looking for signs of injury, specifically behind the ears, looking for bruising and bruising under under the eyes, and then C-spine mobility. Most common diagnosis here is a fall, maybe a contusion, but. Obviously, the things that we worry about would be a brain bleed or a C-spine injury.
3: So a big thank you to Dr. Holland for helping us out today. Uh, Can you summarize what you think are the big take-home points you made today?
1: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I recognize that pediatric assessments can be scary because they're something that is not done as commonly as adult assessments. Um, So be sure to practice in those non-sick kids so that you're more comfortable and ready when those sick kids do come. Approach non-sick and sick kids in the same way using that pediatric assessment triangle just to get in the habit of doing that. And then um, history, vital signs, and a focus exam can help really narrow in on your differential and target your interventions.
4: Awesome. Well, thanks for coming out. We really appreciate you and uh, all the knowledge you were able to share with us today.
1: Thanks for having me.
4: And thanks to everybody for joining us. Uh,
0: Dr. Grawi and Joel, thanks for leading the discussion. Special thanks to Dr. Jamie Holland for taking time out of what I'm sure is a very busy schedule uh, to sit and discuss some very important pediatric assessment topics with us. So as always, thanks to everybody for listening. Thanks everybody for joining today. Stay safe, and we'll see you next month.